Hello, and welcome to the Bedrosian Center's Book Club podcast recorded at USC. We read and discuss new and classic works, fiction and nonfiction, through a lens of governance to really get at what it means to be a citizen in the United States today. I'm Jeff Jenkins, the director of the Bedrosian Center, and I'm your new host. I am new to USC. I've been here in LA for about a month, and I'm going to be trying to take over for Aubrey Hicks, and I have big shoes to fill, and I'll do my best. But thankfully, I have a great team around me today to, um, to help me through this first book. Uh, so what are we talking about today? Uh, well, it's a book that can be described as part true crime, part memoir, and we'll get to that genre description in our conversation. The book is called The Fact of a Body by Alexandria Marzano Lesnovich. So for my first podcast as host, we've got two old hats, as it were. First, Lisa Schweitzer. Lisa, thanks for joining us today. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you do here at USC? Yes, I am a professor in the Department of Urban Planning and Spatial Analysis. Okay, so next is Brittany Shannon. Hi. Brittany, thanks for joining. Uh, tell us what you do here at USC. I'm the resident scholar at the Bedrosian Center, where I produce a podcast called Los Angeles Hashtags Itself, where I'm interested in how digital culture and urban development intersect. Okay. And finally, uh, joining us graciously agreeing to read this book just a few weeks ago is Debbie Winters. Uh, thanks so uh, so much for being here today. Uh, Debbie, what, what do you do here at USC? So I am a clinical associate professor in the Suzanne Dvorak Peck School of Social Work, the new name. And I'm in the child and family department. Um, and I work a lot with early intervention and trauma in schools and generational trauma as well. Okay, terrific. Uh, so we've asked um, we've asked Lisa to give us uh, to start us off with giving uh, a brief synopsis of the book, uh, a short overview, and then we'll go around the table and see if others have to add something to that. I think you did a nice job. I think um, of talking about it in terms of true crime memoir, right? It's an emerging genre. Um, there's a lot of dreck in that genre. There's some also some very, very good books in it. But the true crime part of it chronicles the tale of a, a child sex offender, um, Ricky Langley, who was found guilty of murdering an eight-year-old boy in a small town in Louisiana. And that is the crime that comes to fascinate our author here, who uses that and her own experiences to also draw on the memoir part. Um, where she digs deep into her own experiences to relate to Ricky Langley and to the family that was so affected by the crime, where she talks about her own sexual victimization at the hands of a family member and the long-lasting effects that child loss and child death, as well as the long-lasting harm that sexual violence or intimate violence has in families. And this is all woven throughout the entire narrative. So she has a pretty big job to do because she goes really deep into both families' histories as well. It's, it's, it's odd in this genre because it's also a family saga in a way. So it's it's there's a lot going on here. There is. And and to help us think through it, you you presented this uh, character map for us. Uh, I the... lost track. <laughs> she would bring up Andy and I'd be like, who's Andy? Yeah, that's right. And so I needed to do this in order to keep track of who was who. Well, I, I certainly appreciate it. And it, it, it helps me go back and, and, and think through some of the story. Um, so as Lisa said, um, the author sort of goes back and forth, right, between her story and Ricky's story. Um, and she goes 
back and forth in time as well. So she jumps around quite a bit. I wonder if you think that this this worked well. Um, was this a good way of kind of structuring the story, organizing the story? Why don't you go first since you had such a positive reaction? Yeah, I I actually really loved it. I mean, I I wasn't confused. I mean, I was confused. There was a lot of characters, but I think in terms of the the parallel processes, what got triggered, how their lives paralleled each other, and kind of the ongoing story of what triggered um, her situation as the story progressed with the characters. Um, so I really enjoyed that a lot, um, really paralleling their lives and, and seeing what triggered Alexandria in terms of, you know, the different phases that she went through. Kind of as the story grew, we, we got to go forward with her, we got to go back, we got to anticipate the future. So I found that really powerful and really impactful in terms of how one story influences another. Brittany? Yeah, I agree with that. I um, Like on a mechanical level, I really appreciated the date at the top of every chapter. And more or less, it was like, now Ricky's family and now Alexandria's family. But at no point did she uh, separate each chapter exclusively into that story. She was always connecting the two family sagas. And um, there was enough foreshadowing and there was enough memory because the topic of memory is so important. And not just because it's a memoir, but I was struck by how she reminds us that we see when we're imagining something, but we feel with our body and in our memories. And so the fact of a body, the evidence isn't just what we exhume or what we look at in terms of forensics, but the, the living evidence that we have. And that's why I think that the structure of the book works so well is because it, these things shouldn't be hermetically sealed from one another. They actually do have relevance to one another uh, notwithstanding the family is not having any actual connection outside of a legal intern, you know, one summer long ago. I had more of a problem. <laughs> I think there were in some respects, uh, her editor could have pulled her back a little so mm -hmm. that the themes that seemed really important mm. came up in better relief. There's always a there's always a tension between being overly, overly reductive with human experiences, especially with ones that are traumatic as this. But there were times when, I, you know, I found, and, and, and there were just themes that she didn't really develop particularly well. Mm -hmm. So the parallel between her, her triplet that passed away at birth and, and Oscar, I'm not sure that it really worked all that well because I think the traumas in the families really manifested themselves quite differently, mm -hmm. right? Simply because in, in the former's case, Ricky's parents and the loss of, of their son was also attendant on, for all practical purposes, the loss of an important caregiver in that family that wasn't there in her case, Right. Mm -hmm, is yeah. that, you know, it's different. And, and this is not to miss anyone's suffering, but it is different to lose a child at birth than it is to lose one at eight. So both terrible things, but they're different. Right. The relationship from the other children uh, to the parents and the amount of care that's been given, they're just different. And she never really develops that into something we can understand. And so there was part of me that kind of felt that could have been laid aside in favor of a better understanding of what she was getting out of this. Hmm. in terms of making the connections? I agree. Um, I mean, I think she was a triplet, and that's very significant in someone's life. So I agree that that 
part wasn't developed, I did find myself really wondering, other than the secret. I mean, I think mm-hmm. the secrets throughout the book was such a important theme, um, you know, which is such a dynamic of trauma in terms of the secret. But I really... I found it so interesting, the parallel between Oscar, you know, with Ricky's relationship with the brother he lost, and the story with Jeremy, with the boy he killed, Mm -hmm. um, that it was almost a confusion. It was almost like they morphed together in terms of one person, and, and the psychosis, perhaps, or... The memory or the trauma, I mean, we can look at it from different ways that that story almost became one, that we found him being confused by who he was thinking oh, no, about. I think Oscar's story is important. Yeah. Right. I'm just not sure that the parallel to her family really works all that well on that dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, all families probably have secrets. Um, and I think that, that in some of that, that's the other question that I took out of this is that she didn't really give her parents much voice. In it, and and but when she does, it's I think very impactful. Mm-hmm. When you know she the sort bulldozer. of says, "Yeah, I want to bulldoze that house," and her mom says, mm, "I'm bulldozer. driving." Yeah, <laughs> I'm driving, and that's kind of one of those instances of you know you as children don't always have the world's best perspective on your parents, and that she you know in some respects in focusing on how the loss of that child affected her as a triplet never really thinks about how it affected them as parents is that one of the reasons why they may have never talked about it is that it was painful. And they had four kids they wanted to look after. So there are people, I I just think there are real differences in how people handle pain and harm, and that there may be an insufficient attention in her narrative for the people who just, like her sister, who just want to move forward for now. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's forever. It just means that they don't want to talk now. There's a little bit here and there, right? I mean, in her, she has a a single conversation with her father where he tells her a little bit about why they um, they buried the the triplet in a mass grave and why they did that, where they were at the time. But you're right; the the parents are. We we'll get into that, right? Uh, But the parents aren't there as much of a positive in this story, right? Um, So so one of the things. That you're getting at a little bit is there are two stories and they they interweave. Um, could they have been told better separately? Was there also value added in weaving the stories together? I mean, maybe it doesn't become a 300 page book if you tell yeah. them separately. <laughs> I think I think yes, um, by virtue of the fact that there is an opportunity because at some point Ricky's family becomes you know, Ricky's in prison. And somehow with Ricky being in prison, that's kind of where that family ends because by at that point, his parents are in the grave. Um, other family members have, like, they say their piece, if you will. Lorelai, she wants to just move on in a way. You know, she doesn't want him, she doesn't forgive him, but she also doesn't want him to die, you know? Um, whereas with Alexandria's family, there's like this continuation that there is, where it's and I think for me I didn't need the families to be perfect parallels just as I don't need them to have a perfect temporal overlap um in fact that's for me one of the reasons that the story works better as a memoir and true crime because it shows us that you know pains linger hurt lingers and then there's also healing on top you know we love them so much. They make us, they made me, they hurt me so much. You know, these, these two realities. And, um, 
I don't think you could have done that as well with just the one story. I would agree with that. I, I think, I mean, it was almost what fueled the story, what allowed the story for her to meet Ricky, to go on that path, to review her life. And I agree, it didn't matter if it was a perfect parallel. It was what it what it prompted for her, what it what it created for her, and what it triggered for her, most importantly. So it was... It, they were two. Par- I mean, there were so many. It was, that wasn't the only two parallel stories. There mm-hmm. were so many parallel stories, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I, the impact for me was that's the human condition. Is that you know, and and going back to her family, I think she did have different perspectives of the different family members at different points in her life. I mean, even with her grandfather, to be able to look back and and realize that it wasn't in either or for her. She did have love for him and she did have hate and that it wasn't like a perfect one direction that, you know, she would move forward, she would move backwards. But the story was what triggered the whole experience for her. So I think telling the story separately would not have had the impact for her or for me as a reader. (laughs) I feel differently, obviously. I don't know that you would separate them. But I think if I had been her editor, I would have said less you, simply because there's a lot in this memoir. And she still reads as very fragile to me. And that, in some respects, feels a little bit exploitive. And if she, it's one thing for her to be processing this in a storytelling and cathartic way for her own purposes. It's another to have us in the act of consuming that emotional discharge at this point in her life and doing so with all these members in her family. We have no idea where she had permissions and where she didn't. We don't even, she doesn't even disclose whether she had the cooperation of the victim's family or the perpetrator's family. So that kind of made me a little bit uncomfortable, like her own fragility and not really knowing like what sort of permissions she had. We don't know, we do know she changed names, right? Yeah. To, to protect people, but you're right. Yeah. And and it just just with that, you know, just because they're not perfect parallels, it's just one of those things of going, this happened and I understood it. It doesn't necessarily mean that it gets in the book, right, in terms of the reader's capability of trying to get at what she wants us to understand here. And like I said, there's that fine line between really being true to life and all of its complications and not allowing us to see the forest through the trees. And I think she's getting awfully close to not letting us see the forest. You know, I'm glad to know that they played checkers. I'm glad to know that her parents were spendthrifts. Those are interesting details, but I kind of wonder sometimes how much of that is just, and and this is a real problem with these two genres separately Mm. and them together, when you put them together, is are they great books because they're teaching us something we didn't know about the world before or something about ourselves, or are they great books because they're full of salacious details and it's a little bit like peeking in somebody's window? And there were times with this that I'm like, oh, window peeking. I'm not sure I like what I, – I don't like how entertaining this is right now. <laughs> no, I was never entertained by it. Yeah. that I think that might have been – might be why I forgive it more for the details because it was never – it was never an entertainment. It yeah. was um, – I mean, I think her most powerful writing yeah. is right up at the beginning. Oh, I, I for sure like the uh, yeah. this beginning of the story or the, the book itself more. And I, I guess if I think about it, it does, towards the end, she gets a little bit less disciplined yeah, in her writing. It becomes and very it, unfocused at the end. And we, again, we see this mechanically because we don't get dates anymore and we kind of have to think, okay, where, when is this? Where are we? But I never minded. Hmm. I mean, she dedicates the book to her parents. Yeah, and, we noticed and that. And she does have a section 
where she really talks to her mom and even the grandfather. I mean, so for me, I agree. There were a lot lacking from the book. I mean, there were details that were miss, missed in terms of the perspective of her parents, but it wasn't from the perspective of her parents. It was from her perspective. No, it was but about I think that her. If it's about making sense. I'm sorry to speak over you, but if it's a, you know, if this is about her trying to make sense of these events in her life and, and sense of this terrible event that she becomes attracted to because of her own history, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of that, right? There's a whole lot of detail. And by the end, she basically throws up her hands and says, I don't know what it means. It means what it means, yeah. right? You get what you get, right? Justice is, is difficult to obtain. The law is binary. It's, it's as, as a result inadequate. And okay, right? Okay. But that's it, – it doesn't strike me as being a resolution to the, to the problem that she set herself, so here's here's one example. So she's at this point, and this is a pivot point for her. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons why I sort of question a little bit her own fragility and how she thinks. And again, that's very paternalistic. She's obviously a brilliant writer. And I'm glad she became a writer instead of a lawyer. <laughs> um, and there's all sorts of reasons to not become a lawyer. I'm not judging that. <laughs> but, you know, she sort of has this moment of revulsion in response to this guy's story, and she finds that she wants him to die. Yeah. And this causes her and this is sort of black and white thinking is one of those things that marks fragility to me which is just like you know there are a lot of people who are great and committed defense attorneys who know full well that the humanity will not suffer because it is short a man like Ricky Langley mm-hmm. right that that you can you know you can feel a great deal of hate and revulsion for somebody who committed an act or even just hate their act mm-hmm. and still remain as a general rule committed against the death penalty i'm a, I'm a Anybody who doesn't run away quickly enough has to hear my opinions on how it's a terrible idea, it's terrible public policy, and what have you. But that doesn't mean <laughs> that I'm actually pro John Wayne Gacy, right? You know, and that that moment where she's just like, oh, this becomes this life changing thing for her, where she has this sort of emotional reaction to something that she then credits so many years later for the for the swerve that her life changes. It just doesn't read like a credible way of, of evaluating your life choices. Yeah. Well, I'm, but she <laughs> you think that's she's, hyperbole. I mean, do you think that's just I think that's what she's. Well, see, the thing about it is, what probably happened in life is it got her thinking Hmm. about what her commitments are, and to me, that's a story, right? Instead of oh, I started to doubt my true purpose, so I became a writer. (laughs) But but I think in, in in some essence that she took herself away. You know, that she could say, I've planned this my whole, I mean, I've thought about this my whole life to be against the death penalty. And yet I'm a human being. When it when I really was true to myself and really had my own experience, I'm human. That's and you putting way more interpretation on the event than she gave us, which is fine. I'm willing to believe that. I just, you know, read that part and was like, okay, come on. Well, let's, let's step back here and, and think about this. So we talked about it being a memoir. We talked about it being true crime, right? There's an element there. We've, we've used the term story a number of times, right? How do we think about these three words, right? So the memoir is a, an account of her life and her place in her life. The true crime part is um, an account of Ricky Langley's crime, right? And then she starts the, the book with this notion of, you know, what it means t- to tell stories, right? And, uh, you know, to think about uh, hypotheticals, right? She's in, she's in a law class, right? She's thinking about how they teach. Um, for me, uh, one of the things I was thinking throughout the book was, uh, 
the true crime part is, you know, it was obviously interesting to me, but a lot of that, quite frankly, is a story. She is imagining details mm -hmm. that are going on. This she's, is something she does very well. She's though. filling yeah. in details. And, and, she, and she's very fair with the reader, right? She's like, okay, that house code I just told you about. Yeah. That's my grandma's. That's Mima's right. house coat. That's right. not her house coat. Yeah. Right. She, I think that's actually, I, I think she does a very nice job with that, of giving you those markers of kind of waving her hand and saying, okay, this is this is what I think happened, and this is what I can show you in the court records. Right. And yeah. do you think that makes this true crime, then, that part of the book? Is that a true crime? Well, the fact that there is a fact of a body makes it a true crime, whether it's good true crime and whether it's well-researched and, and bounded in... You know, uh, the best research that she can do is, you know, I don't know how to judge that. She's got some notes in the back, which there's a decent amount, but certainly a historian would would not be impressed. <laughs> they are condensed. They are condensed. The material notes. Um, you know, how do you – it for me, unless you're somebody like a – the the sort of ground zero for this genre for me is My Dark Places by James Elroy. I don't know if anybody's read that. I think that. I read that years ago. It's yeah. Um, it's kind of uh, very unsparing in his own, and he's, he's the son of someone who was murdered. Right. And it is told absolutely unsparingly from his perspective, and it you get it all, warts and all. His mother's faults, her strong points, his faults, his dad. I mean, there's just nothing glossed over here. And I think this is one of the things that's kind of tough about true crime and combining memoir is you may have a lot of perspective on that other family and this other set of tragedies that happened, but you don't always have the best perspective on your own. And then what I mean by perspective is just that ability to, to write about it and really know when you've got a handle on what happened and when you don't, right? Who know what when? Right. You mean her family? Yeah. You just don't know that when you're a little kid. No. And I think that um, in terms of uh, excavating this kind of information, it's telling when her dad's like, oh, she's got this book thing, but, you know, don't, you know, she's the only one that remembers anything about it. And I think that that is not great, but it's a forgivable parental response. Um, it's because, actually not unusual. No, it's not unusual. When you hear it's, these things, there are so many of these instances where somebody moves forward with a claim of molestation, and then one of the siblings will be like, hey, it never happened. I mean, it's routine almost. Right. Yeah. And so there is a different – it is – it's one of these cases I think that's interesting. One of the reasons it was interesting for me to see these two stories aside from one another is because you have all kinds of data, 30,000 pages of transcripts and photographs and researchable evidence that she can do. And then on top of that, say, like I imagine, which is why that story ends up being more robust in the retelling of it. The reason her memoir is so fluid and not as easy to get a hold on is because the people in her own family are not going to be honest with themselves, honest There's with each no other, honest with her. And it's too hard to kind of sit down. I was blown away when she went to her grandfather's house. I was so surprised that she did that because... Um, and she did it as a teenager, right? Yeah, I mean, she did it. Yeah, she does it as, as a young woman, like about to go off to college. And this is like one of the last places she wants to go, <laughs> literally in both senses, I imagine. And she confronts her, de her the monster of her life. And I just, I, I was amazed that she would actually want to be in the same space with him. I couldn't believe that he actually called and like breathed into the phone. I mean, this is like, he <laughs> he was as obscene a grandfather as you can be. And yet there's like this information still is, 
It's, uh, it's like water through the fingers. I didn't, it was harder for her. But I think somehow her going to the grandfather, her talking with her parents, her writing this book mm-hmm. is the whole point of this, that, yeah. that trauma goes untalked about. It, yeah. it be, continues as a secret, and that's where generational trauma comes. And mm-hmm. that's why, for me, that becomes such an important point of the book, more than any of the, the facts, which are important, but the other part that I learned from this book, which I, you know, is so fascinating, is what are facts? Facts are from the perspective of who's telling it. It's like mm-hmm. what what evidence do we choose to tell? From whose perspective? When? Yeah. You know, so that to me I think is is that life piece that we take fact as fact and we we think things are so absolute. But really, as we track it, you know, I mean, even in terms of so many of the characters, the character of Ricky, you know, yes, he was a killer. He killed a boy. And yet other people were saying he was a wonderful person. And and it was the system that, you know, he was the one that said, I need help. I need to be locked up. I want to die. I want to. But, you know, so we look at that from what perspective, you know, and I, and I loved when she asked those questions, like, when does the story begin? Mm-hmm. Um, who began it? From what perspective? Okay, let's, let's talk about some of the characters, right? You brought up some of the characters, and, and Brittany brought up the term monster, right? So who are, who are the monsters in this story? Are there any monsters? Is everyone a monster? I didn't see any monsters. No monsters? Because mm-hmm. that pivotal scene that Brittany's talking about is the scene where she finds out that her grandfather was molested. Well, he, 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 made, he states that. He claims that. I think she believes him. Yeah. I think she believes him. It's very credible. What isn't really all that credible is that he was, that her mom never experienced anything. Um, but again, this, that we know of. That we, that we know of. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's one of the things that raised my eyebrows throughout the book. But I, it's entirely credible. Right? I mean... The intergenerational statistics on child abuse are are very, very clear. Um, And I think she believes him in that moment. And I think that moment changes for her a lot. And I think that's one of the reasons why through her PTSD, which is also pretty obvious throughout, she doesn't remember what happens after that. She doesn't remember what she said. She doesn't remember how she reacted. That'd be a pretty big trigger, right? Because you're shifting, she's shifting her understanding of this person that she thought she understood as being this, this guy who hurt her. So when you say there are no monsters in the story, what do you mean? Well, I mean that, um, you know, if we're talking about Grendel getting up in the morning, scratching his armpits and going out to eat a few Danes and Gelts, Geats or whatever they're called, um, you know, uh, and that's his primary motivation. Either everybody's a monster or nobody's a monster. But in this story, simply because, you know, um, Deb- Debbie is right. Um, Ricky tried very hard mm-hmm. not to do the things that he did. He understood quite young, actually, that he had a severe problem. And just because we don't know how to treat child abusers, right, child sex offenders properly, like our mental health system doesn't know what to do with them. And as a result, you know, people don't want to, right? People don't like problems they can't solve. Um, he just never succeeds in finding a place that takes him seriously and that really works in a custodial way to help him avoid doing the things he does. So are you saying that it's deterministic? No, I'm saying that um, he tried, and a monster wouldn't have tried. You know, a monster wouldn't have, you know, even, he would have would have discounted anybody else's pain. It's very clear that Ricky feels badly about his, or that he felt badly about his history of hurting children. 
um, and that it's actually suggested to me in the book that he killed Jeremy to avoid molesting him. Well, that's that's one possibility. It's one possibility, but if you listen to the author talk about it, that's one of the things that she suggests, and I think verbally, and I, I think that, right? I mean, if you want to say that he's a monster to feel better, fine, but my, I can't do it. Um, like I said, monsters in my universe have no motivation other than the desire to gratify themselves, and he didn't seem to be that person, and neither did the grandfather. See, that's... Uh... I have empathy for Ricky. A friend of mine, actually, right out of college, she was in a psychiatric nurse, and so she did hours at an Oakland mental health, like, outpatient clinic. And she told me about these men would come, and they would beg her for medicine, something to, like, make those voices stop, make the urges stop. They were desperate for help. I never got the impression that grandfather, who actually had all the more resources, uh, you know, financial and social, to seek help and to not do that to his own granddaughters, like, for years, um, that he didn't do that except kind of shoot back, well, it happened to me, it's not a big deal anyway, or reverse that, it's not a big deal, it happened to me. See, this is one of the reasons why mixing the stories is a problem, right? Because she has the documentation of what he did. We have no idea what Grandpa did before she came along. I mean, he lived a life. He raised a family. Mm-hmm. He raised them well enough that, I mean, I can honestly say there are people in my family that if I had children, they would never get within an arm's reach of, right? But they were raised well enough that the daughter allowed these parents into their lives. They And, and I, I do think that the reveal itself was when she became aware that the parents were aware. But I think the parents were suspecting something before that because that's a pretty strong drop okay. in that story. But we don't know anything about Grandpa before her. Well, we can we can guess, but but for me, I mean, I think the monsters are. It's the stigma. It's the generational trauma. It's the mm. secrets. I mean, yeah. I think that becomes hopefully something that maybe we're getting a little bit better on. Probably not. But you think about like in the fifties when the parents were raising their children. This was not talked about, and it was really, I mean, these were high-profile lawyers who were not going to come forth and talk about trauma or seek help. or So it went on. It went on years. It affected so many family. You know, I mean, it affected their family through so many years, and I think that really becomes the monster because at so many different points, if there would have been some protective factors, maybe it would have made a difference. What about the parents? What about her parents here? When she thinks back to, when she, she thinks back to the story of her life, right, in the way that she could not really go to her parents for help, for safety, and while they protected her once they fully understood what, uh, and this was her paternal grandfather, her maternal grandfather, maternal, yeah. Her it mother's took me a while to It did me too. I had to. I was go. grateful for your map. Me That's too. That's one of the reasons that, why I did that. That was yeah. one of the problems I did have. I must say Because I was thinking was there might a chance, right? Because they do generally have gender preferences yeah. that maybe you know dad hadn't been molested, but it was mom. Yeah. No, I really. I had to go back and I had to look at your map, and there was very little said about that piece of it. So that was one problem. Anyway, sorry. So, so no. At, sorry. So at a minimum, they stop. Okay. So grandpa can't babysit anymore, right? Um, but they never really. And you can't stay over. And he can't stay over, right? He can't. He can't be alone with the children. But they really don't 
think about how she could have been harmed by that, right? They think as long as he's no longer there, he's not harming her. But the degree to which he continues to be harmed by his behavior isn't something they think much about. Or at least we don't know that they think much about. It's not clear that they did anything. They certainly didn't talk to her. Um, it was almost, um, you know, maybe it's generational, right? You know, my, my mother was very much like, you don't, you know, if you don't think about a problem, maybe there's no problem at all, right? Um, you know, um, but... Um, it does work with scratching your nose. I'm sorry? It does work if the little itch on your nose, if you don't think about it, it does, <laughs> does go away. But most problems in life are substantially more consequential than that one. Yeah, yeah, I would say. Um, but, you know, it's, I mean, it's not a book that, you know, it's not a book that gets extremely graphic, right? She doesn't really go down that road. But she does talk about, you know, seeing her gynecologist and thinking about having a better, a clear idea of exactly what her grandfather did with her. And that's also kind of a, a moment in the book that kind of, occasionally I'll, I'll be reading a book and I'll stop and I'll think, I'll close the book and I'll think a little bit about it. And it's hard for me not to see him as a monster for the things that he did. So what should, what, what should the parents have done? Well, I'll All say right, this. All right, 21st century, <laughs> highly educated, resourced parents. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, this is, this is um, okay, so I read her uh, dedication about one-third the way, uh, not quite halfway through the book, and I was like, ooh, sick burn, because I thought she was like, because I think <laughs> more than she does, I think, that her parents are uh, have, a bit of responsibility and I do actually I really like your um, framing the monsters as the stigmas and like the the barriers that keep us from talking about this sort of thing because the reason that perhaps she didn't know you know and she doesn't ask previous um, healthcare professionals like why they're asking about her scarring for until she's into her 30s and you know she's had Everyone who's examined her knows exactly what happened to her, you know? It's, well, that's the monster because nobody reported it. Yeah. <laughs> well, but you don't know that she necessarily saw a gynecologist until she was on her own either. That's right? true, but in in college? But what is the, the who does the gynecologist report to in college? She's adult age, hmm. right? You're a mandatory reporter for, for children, but she's a college-age girl by then. Could they have said something to her in that moment? I mean, her I mean, her doctor I mean, in her thirties is like not. There's a question here therapeutically about what you're doing when you're when you're doing an exam. It's one thing to sort of say, "Would you like someone to be present? Would you like you know?" There's a lot of things you might do, but I mean, you think about this: should they have demanded that social services get involved? Should they have never let her see him again? And have the other kids in the family kind of wonder why grandpa never comes by again? I mean, here's our brother, Andy, going, why don't you ever want to see grandpa? <laughs> you know, grandpa's awesome, right? And, you know, I have certainly had experiences with families where, you know, abusers were removed and the other kids were really pissed at the object of the abuse. That child underwent more abuse at the hands of the sibling because they were blamed for getting dad in trouble, for getting grandpa in trouble, for getting mom in trouble. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Victim blaming is... Yeah. And Another so the, monster. Look at the dynamics of this family, right? You're not just looking at an individual actor in, and instead of an individual actor. Like I said, I mean, I don't want to make excuses for him. He behaves unforgivably, right? There are unforgivable harms in the world, and we have to live with those things. But how do you respond to those unforgivable harms in ways that are really nurturing to, to both the victims, Nicola, Nicole, Nicola, 
and and Alexandra, Nicola. Alexandria, Nicola, mm-hmm. and the brother and the parents who, in some respects, strike me as two people who are barely keeping themselves above water. So the father clearly suffers from depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And there seems to be some substance abuse. Mm-hmm. And the, the mother has issues as well, right? So as I'm, But I think she's better at hiding them, don't you? Probably. Yeah. I think um, she's like Nicola. When yeah. you say, um, I'm going to carry on. Yeah. Like, yep. I, I think that the bulldozer, when she's driving that bulldozer, I think she's going to be taking down two houses on her mind. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I don't see her father not doing it to her, not, not doing it to her if she, if he carries on with his daughter, her daughter. Mm. So many daughters. Pronouns. Yeah. Um, it's daughters, possible, yeah, but we you. don't know. It's possible, right. but. Uh, but I think, you know, I, I don't know to what extent they could have, um, confronted the grandfather and done anything positively. But I think their their reaction was to pretend it didn't happen, mm. right? And maybe that's just the easiest thing to do, right? The safest thing to do. You know, you avoid the hard, the hard conversations, right? I mean, they, they probably could have learned some things if they talked to their daughters a little more, right? And but but they were not a talking family. It was very clear from the author's perspective, right? They did not they did not get things out in the open, right? There are lots of secrets in the family, lots of things that weren't said, uh, lots of unknowns, right? She talked about how not really she didn't really understand why people were concerned about her brother for a long period of time, right? And the was it the blue piece of luggage, right, right. that was always there and what that was and um, you weren't supposed to ask about it, right? And do you learn not to ask about it and mom's mom's dresser where she kept things, right? Um, I suppose all families have secrets. This was a partic- this was a, a family that struggled to communicate. Certainly is very Catholic and of their generation, you know, like if something happens, it's in the past. Pet, pet, pet on your shoulder. Carry Moving on. on. No. Moving yeah. On. I mean, think about all the you know, you could not if you begged and pleaded and borrowed and offered cake, get the cake. cake. Get the older <laughs> yeah. members of my family, my extended family, to talk about uh, their experiences in Europe during World War II. Right. Like you could not get anybody to talk yeah. about the sisters that aren't same. there anymore, the brother yeah. that was shot in the farm left to die. You know, they just they mm, they just yeah. would never talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I would say things like, well, don't you want to talk about these things? The, you know, the answer was usually a riff on two things. One was, it hurts and I don't want to relive it. Mm-hmm. And two, why should I burden you with that? Yeah. Right? Why should I burden you with that knowledge? I think that there's a, I think amongst our universe of people, like I said, resourced, educated, 21st century people, there's this bias towards this idea that if you talk about things and you frame and intellectualize them, that you're able to process them. And I'm not sure that's true for everybody. I think it's true for some people. And that's the way some people relate to the world. And I think Alexandria is very much a word person, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That she does make a lot of sense to herself through story. Um, And 
you know, again, more power to you. I hope I hope it all worked. But I, I don't think everybody's like that. Yeah. But I think that's why there are external that's right. you know, reinforcements like child abuse hotlines, you know, that because children are so vulnerable. They're in families, they have no power, they you know, they, they're under the control of their parents. And and I really, you know, as we're talking, I mean, I'm guessing there's a whole nother story with the parents. You yeah. know, we mm-hmm. I mean, that wasn't touched on, but talk about generational trauma. I mean, what yeah. they went through. But if she would have gotten help, I mean, then somebody would have stopped it or would have said, we have to do, you know, something has to be done with this story. And I think it what's so interesting. Her, it might have helped her process before she got deep into the anorexia. Right, before or, she started practicing yeah. so heavily. I mean, that's definitely a possibility. Yeah, well, even but again, when she that's, was in that's school. But again, that's you with a lot of background in, in social work, right? Yeah. And these are, you know, these are defense attorneys who may have had access to those right. resources. But when she was in school, but, people were saying, you have to get help. People were noticing yeah. that she was losing weight. I liked her and, nutritionist. Like, maybe don't go home this time. I thought yeah, that was very yeah. insightful. Yeah. yeah. And even with grandfather, you wonder, were there younger children that were, this was being continued? So mm-hmm. talk about generational. I mean, there is a statute of limitations in terms of reporting, but if someone's in touch with younger children, then that's a current crime, you know, mm-hmm. so. Well, grandpa's dead, right? Yes. Yeah, but I mean, from the point. I was going to say, because otherwise prosecutors got a nice, long, detailed list here. Yeah. But from the years that we knew about him, we don't know if there were, I mean, they didn't talk about other children. Well, the other sort of silent person in the story is Grandma. Yes. Yes. The one who didn't need the hearing aid. Yeah. What did you say? She, um, because it's an old Victorian, right? And she belabors the point that the staircase is loud and uh, carries the deafening memories and the deafening sounds of the creaking floorboards. And um, he would get up out of bed and she says, you know, Grandma didn't, Grandpa wore the hearing aid. My grandmother could have heard him going up the stairs every night. And, yeah, Yeah. I I have a problem with the grandparents. I I do. That's reasonable. (laughs) I guess the one one downside of not confronting him is to the extent that his grandchildren were taken out of the equation, he could have looked around outside of the family. Maybe. Um, But... You know, they're neither here nor there, right? I mean, the story is really about how she, through her adult life, processes what happened to her, right? Yeah. And how she's using the story of Ricky to help deal with some of that, right? At least that's the, the way she's telling it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you have this you have this death penalty um, storyline that's interwoven in here, right? Um, it's something that gets her interested in going into the law. It's something that essentially drives her out of the legal profession. And it's really the back end of the memoir. Um, it's the back or it's the back end of the true crime section, right? Mm-hmm. Is Ricky going to evade death or not? Right? Should he, right? And um, the legal drama. And Which we the, haven't really talked about at all. We haven't yeah. really talked yeah. about it at all. <laughs> yeah. Most of our time right? talking about the memoir. Um, the attorneys are interesting, right? The judge is very interesting and in his very unwillingness to I think he's doing that on purpose. He's doing it on purpose because he wants. I think a he wants. To, I think he wants to clear a mistrial because I don't think he wants to sit. He said he didn't want. To he clear. said because yeah. he was very obvious yeah. about not wanting to do it, and then when they made him sit there, he didn't. Yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> All the times he that he had an opportunity to be on record, he was like, "This is going to be clean as a whistle," and then he would just 
you know, get up without words. How do you say that name? And how? what were the odds that it was going to be Ricky's dad and the sitting judge on his second trial that had that name? Alcide? Alcide? Alcide. It's actually not uncommon in Louisiana. Okay. I've never heard it. I think it's a cool name. It is a cool name. But that was so interesting. I mean, with the trial, the outcome. And and that was really going back to looking at the facts versus the story. I mean, the facts showed he should have got the death penalty been, By you know, the law. based on the law. Yeah. But people didn't want that to happen and manipulated it, you know, in a way that the story influenced more than the law. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about let's talk about what Ricky deserved, right, for what he did, right, and what people, you know, so the state wanted to execute him. Not an uncommon response for prosecutors in Louisiana and elsewhere. <laughs> um, I think you're, I think there's actually something in Louisiana state statute that increases the, the weighting of, of, of death if it's a child. Increases or decreases? Increases. The, increases the weight given to the death of a child relative to the, the death sentence. If you kill a child, it, it should be on the table. I see what you're saying. Okay, I thought Sorry, you Sorry, that like wasn't terribly clear. Adding time. I was like, so he gets to wait longer? No. Waiting It means he gets a, a greater probability that he'll be sentenced to death. Yeah, okay. Or tried. That makes sense. Yeah, for first-degree murder. The, the victim's mother uh, wanted to spare him, right? She did not want to free him, but she did want to spare him. Why? Well, yeah. What do we learn about her, Loralee? I think that was the other parallel that was so interesting, you know, mm-hmm. that in on some level she could relate to the vulnerability, to the trauma. And I don't, I mean, it was so fascinating how they said she didn't forgive him, mm-hmm. but she didn't want him to die. Mm-hmm. And that became very personal for her as well. Kind she of will maybe. fight for him, right? She told him that she will fight yeah. for him. Yeah. Um, to what end? What, what what was that? What sort of closure did she get from that? Well, that was actually a question I had for the group because the agreement was that uh, Ricky was not going to try to plead insane, and for that she would testify on his behalf, uh, like against his receiving the death penalty, and that she would visit him. Um, so, what happened to that agreement going into the third trial? I don't think we ever learned. Um, and I, I wonder, would she think it's a betrayal? Would she think it's understandable? Would she also, in some sense, because this is something happening in the story where the state is kind of running away from the, like the family's wishes anyway, so that they, they are tools of some um, legal operations, defense and uh, prosecutorial. And so I, it was a very interesting thing, the way that the jury, for example, made the decision a personal judgment call as opposed to a judicial one by the state of Louisiana. So what was your take? What happened in the third trial that we don't learn about? And you why know, don't we know? Well, I mean, deliberations with 12 people, right? You're not yeah. necessarily guaranteed to hear the same story again and again because no. stories are contingent not just on the teller but on the listener. Right, right. I mean, I think for her, I mean, I, you guys are going to get mad at me, but um, (laughs) I think for her, he's a connection to, um, he's, he's the last connection to Jeremy, right? He's the last person who saw him. That makes sense. You know, there are plenty of people in the world who say basically, you know, I want the guy to die. He killed my daughter. It's tit for tat. This is the way it should go. 
But when that's done, nothing's really changed. Mm-hmm. And she think I think she has the wisdom to know that. She herself, there's something going on with that family too. Right. So there's the brother, Richard, and his wife, Mary, and they're not as nice as they could be. And she's not living with them, even though she could be. And they live in a big house. And what's going on with that? Um, so they're kind of not looking out for her and kind of not looking out for the boy. And she's kind of on her own. And her parents are nowhere, you mm-hmm. know. And it may just be, you know, an author discretion and saying, you know, I got to stop the story somewhere and I'm going to stop with those, those two. But I just, I just feel like in some respects, one, She's been through enough pain and suffering in her own life that she recognizes when somebody else has been through a lot. And she probably saw that in Ricky. And two, he's the last person that saw her son alive. And that means something to her. Yeah, why not? See, that's the part that's really hard for me to, from a, from a parent perspective. Sure. I mean, that's just, I mean, I, I think it's, for me, it's more about her relating to the past, relating to the suffering and but it's interesting to think, did they have a connection? I mean, because he was nice to her. But when, whether, you know, even, even, yeah. even, right, ultimately, even when, especially, right, when somebody harms you in that terrible way, you're connected with them. Yeah. Whether you want to be or not. That's very, right? that's, yeah. It is. That's it's one of the meanest, perspective it's one of me. the meanest things about harm and trauma, right, is that you, yeah. you it'd be awfully nice to walk away and, and not think about the person who harmed you ever again, but you don't. Yeah. You do. Well, you think all the time about them. They revisit you. There were a lot of these little strands, right? Little little pieces of story that were sort of interesting. And like you said, she, she can't tell everything, right? Uh, I think one could even make the case that, that this book could have been condensed a bit, right? But some of these things, you know, struck me as very interesting, right? The Laura Lee's relationship with her brother, right? This, this, this kind of unknown where the family... Uh, that Ricky was staying with the father and the son, right? Got into the motorcycle accident, and it oh God. too. Terry and Pearl yeah. too. I'm like, what's their deal? That, yeah. And you know, he, she made very clear, right? She, the, the the motorcycle hit the the second car on the train, Jeez. right? And um, that's that's, that's clear intent, right? To essentially drive the motorcycle into either that or he was rendered incompetent in some way, right? Yeah. He had a heart attack and couldn't but control full, the vehicle full speed. That's yeah. where like. In terms of forensics, it sounds like he was. Yeah, I, I don't buy driving. it for five seconds, but I, I, <laughs> it's saying that it's theoretically possible. But yeah. there's something going on with that. Mm-hmm. But that really wasn't touched on. That was kind of like, oh, it happened, and well, I mean, it was she, a she, 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 heavy. So part of the question that I had was another one of those strands were, um, what's their faces on my on my little chart there? His friends, right? The friends in California he visits. Yeah, like Ellen. Yes, and Ellen and Mike. Mike, yeah. Um, he, she sort of talks about. It, and, and that was one of those story ends where I was like, well, why were we just there? Why did you take us yeah, here? <laughs> I'm with you there. Yeah. Uh, what? What? And, and it, 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 it seems kind of dodgy. Like all of a sudden there was this grand friendship. And as we know, mm-hmm. right, people who are traumatized and people who have severe mental illnesses often have trouble maintaining relationships. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't have any more information on why that that relationship ended. Yeah. And I don't understand why that one was singled out for the additional story. And those are those moments where I do think, in some respects, as an author, it would have been very nice for her to kind of close those loops for us, right? Uh, just a little bit, not beat us over the head with it, but just close those loops to help us see what she saw there. Like, you know, she she goes back to the scene of of this crappy little town. I'm sorry, it's probably a beautiful town. If you're actually <laughs> no, from that Google town. Ma- I Google Maps yeah, it. No, it's your no. typical Louisiana yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's like, just yeah. she goes to this town and she it's goes to these again. various places. And she's like, well, there's just this little sign here and there's nothing here. And I'm like, and there's just a house. And I'm like, what'd you expect? A plaque? <laughs> a band? 
you know? And and that's just one of those things of where, you know, it might have been kind of nice for us to have her say a little bit like, you know, this terrible trauma happened and yet it looks like an ordinary place, which I think was the point of that retelling. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't close those loops. And so you're just kind of sitting here going, okay. But I think part <laughs> of the it place? is his journey and, and how he touched different people along the way. One of the most interesting characters I thought or relationship that was one of those along the way was his relationship with Ruth. Mm -hmm. Well, I think because that one was consequential, was, though. Yeah. That one mattered. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because, because I think that humanized him quite a bit and And, and saw. her, too. Yeah. 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 Um, but I, it was still with the folks out in California. I was going... And what is it with like the whole like California, California kind of like nostalgia? We that'll liberate us all. Her father has those, you know, those drunken um, meanderings about how if only I had gone to California, like the fork in the road. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I agree. I feel like if she was going to, there were these um, characters, Ellen and Pearl, in, in particular, because they ended up on the witness stand, and yet yep. she doesn't talk enough about those transcripts. She yeah. doesn't because Ellen said something, Pearl said something, and she gets uh, she does a nice job of saying what Pearl didn't say, mm -hmm. but I would have liked to have heard more about that mm -hmm. um, because I just uh, – otherwise it felt like information she could have gotten. I felt like it was information she had or a nice imagining she could have done. It was an opportunity for something. I would have had some something. problems if she had ascribed – testimony to somebody that that yeah. seems a little outside of the bounds for reporting oh no no i'm not saying like yeah. invent testimony i'm saying if she had um, but i kind of want to know what they're doing in this story because they're clearly yeah, there made them made them mean something yeah. more um I, I honestly don't know what mike and ellen are doing <laughs> i think I, one of the people i kind of wanted to know a little bit about were the buddies that he did have because she yeah. kept saying that he had no friends and yet he was cruising around with a couple friends when he decided to stop in to the mental health center mm -hmm. or the hospital to say i got problems and so he did have people in his life then who at least went places with him he did suggest that they had the same, same. background that yeah. he did mm -hmm. yeah um and they coaxed him into going in mm -hmm. um so yeah i mean you have I mean, all they of these... seem a little bit more important than That's these right. random people in california but you do have these characters kind of pop in for a couple pages yeah right um and it's not always clear as you said that they push the story along right yeah. in, in clear ways um who do you think was the most interesting person in this tale most interesting um in terms of i want to know more about them or yeah yeah i just there's a lot of there's it's a big family saga on both sides and just who who you know did you kind of wish you could actually sit down and talk to i want to know more about her family i want to know more about her parents mm -hmm. uh, yeah. i'd like to know more about her grandfather and grandmother for that for that matter um her her little sister who was also abused who um doesn't really get, I mean, the, the only role she plays is she wants to get past this, and she's going to get past this by not seeing herself as a victim. She's not going to take on that label. Yeah, right? I also and, think she's important, too, and I think this is, this is really important for Alexandria, though, is that she's also there as a witness, because if Alexandria had been on her own entirely in this family without mm -hmm. Nicola to say, hey, this is happening to me, too, that can be very, very damaging and crazy-making for, mm -hmm, for somebody mm -hmm. who's been abused. 
So I think she's important for that too. But then when she takes an entirely different road in dealing with the same thing, it becomes very mysterious, right? And confusing for Alexander. I mean, it's not clear that the two of them spoke about it as they were becoming adults. Um, just it seemed like it. they weren't close. Mm-hmm. And um, her brother grew up to become a very sociable. I mean, he was the kind of the glue in the family mm-hmm. in some sense, right? He held everyone together. He was the jokester. Um, and he... He, he started life as this kind of sickly little kid that everybody was so worried about, and he became something else, I guess. Yeah, see, he's one that I would want, that I would want to interview. You would want to know more about at him? At this point, I'd like to interview him. I would. What would you ask him? I would actually kind of like to know what, what he thought. Was he aware of any of this? What, what he thought the environment was, what he thought about Jacqueline. He too has the same experience mm-hmm. that that Alexandria has of being sort of missing this third person. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just I'd be very interested in in thinking about how you know he views his parents. Um, another group of people I kind of want to talk to are Daphne and some of the girls here. Daphne and um, Ricky's sisters, uh, Judy, Darlene, Darlene, not Daphne, Darlene yeah. Francis, because they're still around. Yeah. And um, one or more of them takes him in at various points in in the story, Mm -hmm. Um, but they're not really there anywhere meaningful. Well, and one of them testifies that there was no abuse in their family, which that was the other. I mean, that was the other family that were were very good with secrets. I mean, we had a happy family and, you know, you know, we've got one group of people saying that he was viciously beaten, that he was derogated, he was verbally abused. And then we've got, you know, Darlene on the stand going, yeah, he was loved. You know, maybe in her mind, all that business was love, but I'm making a weird gesture with my face and my hands (laughs) for those of you on the radio that suggests that I am, uh, I I don't really know what what she really meant by love, but that's the sort of Rashomon thing that it's so common with with families where these secrets are kept. Somebody knows, somebody doesn't. And, And it's interesting, I mean, because even as she told the story, Alexandria, I mean, she talked about the vacations, the family vacations, the happy times, and it, it's, it's like, it's both and. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it yeah. isn't, you know, in either or. And I think that's true of a lot of families, you know, mm. that there is that public image or those are their moments and there's a lot of hardship and anger and abuse. And yeah, so you cannot, I think, you cannot choose the way you're going to feel about the things that people do to you. And you certainly can't choose the things that they do to you. And yeah. just as much, you cannot choose to get out of the family. Yeah. Like you can, uh, you know, you can isolate yourself physically. Which can be useful. Mm. I Yes. Yeah. It's a coping mechanism. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, you're still there with your thoughts. Yeah. As you were saying earlier. Yeah, you don't. These people never cease being your family. And it's yeah. not, you know, you can try to recreate family and there's lots of relationships that are very nurturing. But your family of origin is a big determinative of your yeah. history and your capabilities. Mm-hmm. But I wonder, I mean, I, I feel like a big part of her writing this book, it, it might have also been to talk to her family or to talk for Nicola and and Andy, you know, to be able to finally tell that story that says, you know what, you thought our family was really perfect but it wasn't. And let me really tell you what was going on in our family. you got to wonder if there's going to be any thank you cards for that one, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. So who yeah. was your, who did you think was most interesting? Who would you like to interview? I don't know. I think I... There's interview and learn more about. Yeah. Right? Because there are some dead people. Yeah. <laughs> then we did so a seance and that would time, be really interesting and that's the sequel. <laughs> if time didn't matter, 
I talked to Bessie. Yeah. But well, given that's, that, that too, that too, the woman's what? in a body cast. Yeah. How did she get pregnant in a body Twice. cast? Twice. <laughs> well, yeah. Because uh, there's part of me that's going, you know, I have known, right, bedridden people who were subjected to abuse by staffers. Yeah, right? that's, I was became, like, are we sure that's Alcide's that's, kid? But I mean, Elsie didn't kick up a fuss. Now, maybe this is more, we're just going to go forward stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe this is mm-hmm. Elsie. But you would have think that he would have objected if it, it wasn't his. Yeah. Right, yeah. So, so that was, okay, so that's... I and that I still way, understand I that there are clearly mechanics of this, but come on. Yeah. And the baby was growing, and they had to cart- cut out the whole. I would say this is non-ideal. I mean, it, it, at one point, <laughs> it was suggested that he wanted her to abort the baby. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, Even though that was not his natural or his default, right? Yeah. Um, so it's unclear. I mean, it's that was that's yeah, a mystery, right? There are all these little tiny mysteries throughout the book, <laughs> but right? some of them sort of speak to a pretty big deal, right? Yeah. So there's there's evidence. On Jeremy, the boy who was killed, mm-hmm. that maybe someone else was involved as well, yeah. right? There was physical evidence on right. on his face, right? Mm-hmm. I won't yeah. go into any more graphic detail. And that has to do at least potentially with the the individuals on the motorcycle who mm-hmm. killed themselves, right? And maybe there was a maybe there was more to it. And she hypothesizes, right? She 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 tells stories of what could have happened, what might not have happened. Um, do you think, you know, how, how effective do you think she is at humanizing Ricky? I think she's very good at humanizing Ricky. I, um, because she has the most information about him. And so she has the clearest picture of what a human is. And so that makes him very hard to demonize because she has all those pages of a human being and all his contradictions. I say this thing, I say that thing. I was kind of... Um, uh, he is the happiest when he's in jail. He's his family historian, you know, He's and he's begging to be on the inside. And yet he does murder a six-year-old boy. And I think he's hard to turn away from by the end. I, maybe that's why I didn't have a hard time with Lorelai forgiving him. Um, because as Alexandria notes, like it's the, it's the what ifs. Those are the things that hurt. Like if you're going to lose somebody, it's not, it's, you know, graduation day that could have been. What do you think of the ghost story that's in this book? Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. What do you think of the ghost yeah. story? Um, tell, tell the reader about the ghost yeah, story. Yeah. It is not clear whether they're, what, what, what's intended with this discussion, but if you're talking about what I'm thinking, um, the idea is that um, Ricky, who is the, the murderer in the story believes himself from a very young age to have seen his brother, Oscar, who died tragically in a car accident. Just awful, unbelievably awful for the parents. And and his mother, Bessie, who we just discussed, was terribly injured. And the boy himself died on the scene uh, very tragically. And so even as a very young boy, Ricky reports seeing this little blonde boy manifesting in, you know, talking to him in his room, seeing him outside in the yard and interacting with him. And in some respects, he will say things like, he's taking me over, he is me, or I am him, right? And it's, it's that's the ghost story that you were talking about? Okay, good. Because I was gonna say, I missed it all, if that's not the one. <laughs> and I feel like I'm a very careful reader. 
Um, what do you guys think of that? Because I think that it would not be unusual for somebody as deeply troubled as Ricky. It's very clear, right, that he has an organic problem here in terms of his schizophrenia. Um, that, that that does show up, and it can show up very, very young, and that that could very well be something he's wrapped around the voices in his head because the family's going to have pictures. There's going to be mm-hmm. evidence of this little boy in, in the world, and that that may be just a pro- not just a projection of his mind, but that I, I'm, I don't believe in ghosts. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but this is interesting because the book, uh, for the listeners, the book never says anything about schizophrenia. So um, Lisa... You talk about psychosis. Psychosis, yeah. And there is, the, there is the attempt to, um, the third attempt, the trial, to, um, you know, um, sorry, the defense chooses by, uh, to plea in, in um, non-compassmensis, I think mm-hmm. it is, um, which doesn't work. But so what makes you say schizophrenia? His attorney is on record as saying that um, Ricky has schizophrenia. But so that is... I don't think it's in the book. I think it was on some background reading that I did for the book. There was a a moment in the book where the foreman in the second trial said, uh, I had a family member with schizophrenia and I'm just not going to put this guy to death. So he recognized within Ricky. I thought it was just like um, an umbrella, like mental health. I can't... Yeah, Clive Stafford, who was the defense attorney, mm-hmm. uh, basically said at one point in some of the background reading that I was doing that um, Mr. Langley has the worst case of schizophrenia he's ever witnessed. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. I mean, this is a lawyer. He may not know what diagnosis is. It wasn't. And his as, father was also schizophrenic. Yeah. yeah. So that I, I, that's what's so fun. I mean, yeah. is that everybody's story paralleled. Like, you know, he saw, he had empathy because of his own Right. Father. All I know is he if Mr. Read. Stafford writes a book, I'm reading it. Yeah, because that dude is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that was also very interesting is that like each trial is like you're presented with, you know, so presume this happens with all trials, presumably all the facts. But then like each time there was a new trial, it was sliced and diced mm-hmm. to make an entirely different narrative. Yeah. Um, yeah, some evidence is let in, some is withheld. Right. Yeah. So did anybody else think it was an actual ghost? Uh, no. I mean, not oh. everybody's as hopelessly prosaic as I am. <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, he saw. I mean, it's important to the his. story because at one point he thinks he's strangling Oscar. Mm-hmm. Well, and he has right. This is this is his this is his victim profile, right? Mm-hmm. This goes on to become his victim profiles. Yeah. Very young, small, blonde boys. Yeah. And another one. I mean, there were secrets about Oscar. It was like no, no one talked to. Him. He saw pictures, mm-hmm. but he didn't really know the story, and it, it started to really haunt him. I mean. I, even if it was, I mean, not a physical. There's, there's all sorts of haunting. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, the like, parents I mean, were clearly haunted. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would be too if if your child died in that terrible yeah. way. Yeah. yeah, it's clear that he had a lot of strikes against him from the beginning, right? I mean, his mother's pumped up with all these drugs, right, during her pregnancy. Alcohol. Yeah. She's not allowed to move. Yeah. So, like, even if even if she'd been clean and um, in traction, that's still not an ideal like neonatal space. Right. And pain, in pain all the time. Yeah, I'm not available like that's all, to him. It's all getting through. So one little piece about uh, just presentation in the book, right? So I'm reading this book, and probably like some of you, one of the things I want to do is I want to see I want to see a photo of some people, right? So I go online <laughs> and I start to Google a little bit and get mm-hmm. some. You know, here's what here's what Ricky looks like in jail. Here. There are no photos. There are no, no photos in here. I was just chewing. Saying. I was chewing on the edge of the book and with w- irritation. Yeah. What do you think of that? <laughs> I wanted them. I mean, I would think the publisher would have wanted. To I put agree, them in. and I feel like um, like they're 
some of them are pub- public. Yeah. But the, 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 the absence, the utter absence of photo did make me wonder about how much permission she had from family. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's because interesting that's where photograph. we would get photos of Bessie, for example. There are pictures of Bessie online. Mm-hmm. But that was one of the things. Oh, I, this is the first thing I do yeah, when yeah, I, I get a hardcover book is I'm like, I'm going to look at the people. <laughs> you know, and then I get on here and there are no people. And I'm like, wait a yeah. minute, you cheap publisher people. Why did you not give me? I mean, the very least for the publication page, yeah. right? If you're not going to put it in the book, you can put it online and yeah. show people. Yeah. The, there's and, something about not having pictures, too, in, in that you kind of think about it in your own mind and you you think about the psychology versus how the person looks. I totally get that for fiction. Me too. But I think for nonfiction, Uh like we need... I mean, this is a book about, this is a true crime. Right. So this is research. And yeah, so and let's I have been some okay visuals. Left her family out. Really? Yeah, I would have, I would have been to totally fine mom with that. And dad and See, what that they would have, I like. think, in many respects, just negated the sort of shifting the names. Right? I mean, I got to tell yeah. you, one of the, memoir is not one of my genres anyway. Right. For me, true crime is like kryptonite. I read, I read garbage in this genre. Don't even look at me. I'm ashamed of it. Um, I cannot leave it alone. Right. But with memoir, I have very little patience simply because, like I said, I just, it's got to be so well written because so few people actually can talk about their situations. They've either got to be really, really funny, like David Sedaris. Yeah. Or they have to have been in a really interesting place and been a marvelous writer for me to be on board with this. Do you think this story could have held on as a true crime? Is there enough in there? Yeah. Is is compelling enough? If the reporting is, you think about the real classics in that genre, like the a lot of really good international reporters, right, work on true crime. So Excellent Cadavers um, mm-hmm. is one that comes into mind. I can't re- remember how to pronounce his name very well, but the very detailed true crime uh, breakdown of the mafia in Sicily during a specific time period. That's that's there, There's journalists who are doing this, and they're very good work. Um, oh, the one in Tokyo. Really good piece. And Rule, in some respects, is is kind of like the originator of this kind of arm's length memoir. It's usually a brother, sister, somebody related to either the victim or the mom. Mm. And Rule wrote a book that in many respects kind of sp- spawned these kinds of more arm's length um, true crime memoirs with her book on uh, Ted Bundy. Because she worked with him at an emergency call center. That's huh. how she knew him. So she was personally acquainted with him. And then she went on to write about her experiences and Bundy as a, the rest yeah. of his life. Um, but I just, I don't, I think it could have in the hands of, of the right writer. That's not the book she wanted to write. And, you know, I'm, as somebody who writes whatever I want, whenever yeah. I want and gets in trouble all the time, I, I have to say more power to you, lady. If this is what you want to write, this is what you want to write. And whether I love it or not, whatever, man. Yeah. <laughs> I liked how she wrote. I mean, I liked I liked the descriptiveness, and I liked you know that it, it was artistic. I think it was creative. Um, just the words, her descriptions. I think it, it it made it richer for me. You know, just in terms of going on a journey with them and kind of seeing what she saw, but then also what we you were saying before, just in terms of being able to say, and this is from my perspective, this is kind of my imagination or this, because she made it sound so real. And then she would say, well, that was from these these transcripts, or that was from um, something else, which I thought she did a really nice job of making it come alive. I agree. I liked that. Well, her continuation of the, there were t- sometimes in the descriptions where I thought she was straining a little bit, but 
you know, at least she's trying. And there are some things that I think she did exceptionally well in terms of descriptive or nonfiction or creative nonfiction, which Mm -hmm. was the use of various different material symbols that she carried the whole way through, like the BB gun, Mm -hmm. uh, Bessie's trunk, uh, the checkers games. Drawing. Yeah. That then became sort of markers for a switch in the narrative. Mm -hmm. So where is she at the end? Do you feel like she achieved anything i still want her to go to therapy like a lot (laughs) because i think that she has a ptsd that cannot be taken she needs to be and she she knows it i mean she talks i mean the title of the book the fact of a body like her memories are corporeal they're embodied they're embodied thank you and she um as talking is not going to do this she needs to uh do a different kind of um, post-traumatic therapy that gets at that. And I hope she can do it soon because, I mean, she like very recently even, she has an, uh, like she's in, she's in bed with her girlfriend and she, um, like she's, she, she right. can't, she's, she, she's still re-traumatized yeah. and she's feeling this and this is, you know. It's a barrier to her relationships now. Yeah. yeah. And I think that she has, she's starting this, she started her relationship with this woman when 2014, 15, like it's right yesterday. Yeah. So I think that she, this is actually, strangely, I think this is a very good starting point or maybe a middle point for her even. So that's another understanding that feeling healing always happens. Yeah. That's another little piece of the story, right? She comes out as gay. She reveals herself as gay. She she has boyfriends and she talks about them in some detail. And now she's moved over, right? And and how does that fit in here, if at all, to the story? Does that have a does that have a parallel at all in the true crime? I think it is does, that important just to the story in terms of her being able to be real with who she is. Um, you know, kind of going through again. I don't. I mean, the background of the family in terms of a religious family, or or feeling like she has to be like the other girls and have the boyfriends and have the experiences, even though she never really felt it. Um, but being able to really create a different life for herself as an adult and have her story. Mm-hmm. Well, and her um, own struggles with not wanting to be a stereotype confirmer. Yeah. Right. How this becomes a barrier for her to being able to embrace her sexuality. Yeah. Right. Is that she doesn't want to be that lesbian who, you yeah. know, undergoes childhood trauma and now, you know, can't get over it. Instead yeah. of being able to just say, you know, I was rigged up this way and this is how, these are the relationships that really work for me. Yeah. And I, I actually love how she said, and it's not because I was abused. Yeah. I mean, because I'm gay whole, or, yeah. or also, you yeah. know, like, um, but that's just another layer of, of stigma, right? That she's sitting yeah, here yeah. and she's she's not really having successful relationships with these boyfriends, even though some are nice guys. Right? She does a nice job of not yeah. being that right. um, They're self-harming. Just, that's right. She, okay, anorexia she, aside. Right. The but first she set of boyfriends, not so good, but plenty of us have those dudes. Sure. Right. <laughs> she doesn't drink. Don't worry about them. She could very easily be in like yeah. a, a yeah. Or, and she could be in very, very destructive that's adult really relationships. Yeah. She, she manages to avoid that. But I, it is sort of in some respects this desire to avoid confirming people's stereotypes of what happens with the young mm-hmm. women who are abused. Stereotypes of lesbians that sort of like she's not, you know, that's like another thing she's got to deal with. Right. Which is just irritating. It is. Lots of undercurrents in this book. Yeah. So that that begs the question, and we're, we're getting close to the end now, but did you like the book? 
Can you identify a favorite part, a favorite line of the book? And if you were if you were thinking about the book vis-a-vis other people, who would you recommend to read it, if anyone? I would definitely recommend this to other people like me who cannot control themselves around true crime. Because this <laughs> is, it, it, it's, it's a very nice, I think the reporting is quite good and the writing is good. Um, I think she's very responsible with Ricky's story, which is awesome. Now, whether she's entitled to really be the person to tell this story, we don't know, but lots of reporters have to grapple with that. I did like the book, but I still feel for her a lot, and that's hard. There's a lot of empathy for her. There's, I do have a favorite line that made me so angry that I threw the book across the room. Oh, oh I love those favorite lines. <laughs> um, just because of a frustration on his behalf. It's on page 144, Ooh. talking about this from Ricky's um, perspective of trying to get help. When he wakes, he is sweaty and sick and shaking, but he writes down the dream in a notebook. He brings the notebook to his therapy sessions and hands it to the therapist. Don't let me out of here, he says. If you want your life to be something different, Ricky, she says, you have to make it into something different. And at that point, I got so angry, I threw the book. Because there's advice you can't get every bloody wear. Right. Gotcha, chief. Ugh. Right? It's just, you know, that's a platitude that you can hand out in therapy, but it's really not useful to somebody who is wired a very specific way and really needs social support to help figure out how he's going to be able to live his life without harming other people. And social support, which is dreadfully lacking, not just in families, but in communities and in our health institutions. Mm -hmm. But if you want a different life, just think your way thin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so irritated by yeah. that. And, and for me, it's, it's the, one of those points where she just really does twist a knife hard and makes us think, you know, here's this poor guy trying to do better. He's got nothing in the way of anybody resourcing him. Oh, like I said, people like me who read true crime and they spend their time reading garbage instead of good stuff. This is good stuff. They should read it. Okay. See, I, I, I liked it a lot because the psychological piece. For me, the details were not as important as the human perspective and, and how the story really intertwined and how it, it kind of um, sparked different characters as they went through this. And the line that I liked was um, at the very end, and it said, the man who sits down across from me is a man. He'll never be all one thing or the other. Only a story can be that, never a person. And I think that's, you know, that's, it's so true that you, you really can look at people and the duality of you can be a great person and run into really big hardships that can change you and affect your life and affect other people's lives. And I mean, even the judge, you know, the, the judge being able to say, wow, I, I, I'm out of here. And this is, I mean, that was so crazy that that was his last trial and then he died. I mean, I, I find those, those things that happen in life that you don't plan, you know, I mean, the OJ trial too, right? When, I forgot his name now. Um, who was the attorney who died right after? Um, Cochran. Cochran, yeah. Cochran. I mean, that was such a, he ends up with the brain tumor. <laughs> yeah. So did I like the book? Yes. But as I said earlier, I did not find it to be an entertainment. It was, uh, it was, I thought, I really liked the writing. I enjoyed her words. If I did not enjoy the stories within them, I don't see that being, I understand my opinion there. <laughs> uh, I would recommend this to people who love true crime, for sure. 
I also like the idea of, um, and I, I realize I'm stepping on your discipline's toes, but like, because public administration or planners, like there's really not planning in this book, not a lot of urban development stuff, but I would like, um, you know, social workers to read it, to understand from Ricky's perspective and to see, um, because they, I, these young people are all heart, but then in Ricky's story, you see the, the bureaucratic limitations that are, um, explicated by the quote you used just then lisa like you know um and then i my favorite line was uh well the bulldozer line and then i also alluded to it earlier i can't say that i forgive them only that forgiveness is too simple a word they helped make me they did such harm i think that's another human experience statement I had a lot of mixed feelings about the book. You know, I, I don't know that I disliked it. Uh, it was a fairly quick read. I think she writes well. Um, I think her life um, was compelling, right? I mean, we various other things we didn't even talk about, right? Her battle with Lyme disease and how that affects her life. Yes. Um, and how it's misdiagnosed for a while, right? Um, you know, I, I find, you know, I, again, I, 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 I know that these things were supposed to weave into each other and, and, and play off of each other. I found both of them sort of interesting, right? The Ricky part I thought was interesting, maybe like as a Vanity Fair article, right? About that length would have, would have been kind of interesting. <laughs> I, I would have liked to have learned more about her and her family, right? Yeah. And um, maybe she would have had to tell more stories because it wouldn't, you know, she couldn't get much more out of her parents. Maybe she could have talked to her siblings a bit more, Um but uh, I found her and her life to be pretty interesting. I, I you know, I felt for her throughout, right? Yeah, I'm was, ready for her to catch a break. Yeah, I mean, yeah. on some of these things. And I'm not sure at the end of the, you know, at the end of the story, you know, she is, um, she sits down with Ricky, right? She's, I mean, that's kind of my favorite line, right? Hi, Ricky, right? Uh, is, yeah. I think is the last, the very last line. Yes. Hello, Ricky. I say, and that's it. And we conclude at that point. Uh, I think she's brave. Um, in, in trying to confront some of these things. Um, you know, despite all of the problems that she had in life, she still uh, got in the University of Chicago, right? She still went to Harvard Law. Very accomplished. Uh, she is now at Harvard Business School, right? Teaching at the Kennedy School. Teaching yeah. writing at the Kennedy School. Um, so despite all of the travails in her life, um, she's managed to put together a pretty good professional career. Um, what's interesting is that when I was doing Googling of, of, of photos, I found this photo. That's the first one, but there's another one right after this of her and she's breaking out in this kind of this, this bright, wondrous smile, right? She's got, she has a great smile, right? I, that's probably not best for this book jacket, but you know, so she's capable of, of, you know, having, uh, you know, very positive, uh, feelings, I guess about something or, or the, the cameraman just told a great joke or something like that. There's a nice, uh, video on YouTube of her reading from the book. I would encourage people to listen to that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's one of those moments though, when I was listening to her read that I'm like, this is still very, very emotional. Yeah. I also listened to it, which was great. I, I enjoyed that a lot, just kind of hearing it from her voice and her perspective. But yeah. it's also, I mean, it's it's a way of her getting some control over her life, even knowing that it's not going to go away. It's mm -hmm. not ever going to be over for her. She's going to go through different phases of life. And I think for everyone, as she gets triggered, she might take 
two steps forward and three steps back. I mean, yeah. it's life isn't right. just you need it's directional. Yeah. I wonder what effect this book will have on her relationships with her siblings. That's one of my questions, because one of the problems with processing this all so publicly is that once it's out there, it's out there. Now, she changed their names, I believe she said at one point, right? But she didn't change hers. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. And, and it's not like her last name is Johnson or something no, like that, right? it is or not. Smith. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm and sure. And I'm that hoping that they're supportive, but, you know, it's just, it's out there once it's out there. And, you know, there's all sorts of ways in which, you know, memoirs do have blowback. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's already so fragile and she's already had a lot happen to her that that's one of the things that I look at with this of going, you know, is that PTSD, you know, and I'm armchair diagnosing, but when you can't remember things, it's a pretty good sign. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that there's just additional pain that could be compounded if this causes that kind of blowback. Yeah. So I don't know. Well, we could talk forever, mm-hmm. probably, about this. Because we're so fabulous and interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, the three of you are, right? I'm just here to moderate. And welcome, by the way. Thank you very much. So for the listeners out there, I want to thank Lisa, Brittany, and Debbie very much for helping me through this very first podcast. And of course, Aubrey's here holding my hand, metaphorically <laughs> speaking. And thank you to all of our listeners. To find our whole suite of podcasts exploring governance and civics, search USC Bedrosian, and you'll find intelligent conversations about important issues today. You'll find a link to next month's book selection as well as to some of the things we talked about today on our website, bedrosian.usc.edu backslash book club. For our producers, Aubrey Hicks and Jonathan Schwartz, as well as our sound editors, Corey and Ryan Hedden, I'm Jeffrey Jenkins at the University of Southern California Saul Price School of Public Policy. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next month.